Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. Welcome to episode 33 of Inside the Musician's Brain. I'm your host, Chris Pandolfi from the infamous String Dusters, and I am very excited about today's episode. I cannot wait for you all to hear my interview with legendary bass player Chris Wood. I've been a huge fan of Medeski, Martin, and Wood for as long as I've been into music, and I am also a huge fan of the Wood Brothers. Some really tremendous music, and this was such a fascinating interview. More on that in just a moment. I want to tell you all about my awesome sponsors this season. I've teamed up with Deering Banjos. Great company. They make absolutely phenomenal instruments, all made in the USA, and banjos of all different levels. If you ask me, they have by far the best affordable banjo option out there. That's the good time banjo. So, if you want to get into it, test the waters, check it out, or maybe banjo is not your first instrument and you don't want to spend a fortune, but you still want a really quality instrument that sounds great and stays in tune, the good time is a great option for you. They also have a phenomenal website that's a great resource for banjoists who are learning all kinds of great lessons, great content on there. And they're also, as of pretty recently, making really high quality picks, banjo picks. I'm using their heritage finger picks and their thumb pick as well. They sound great. They feel great. Can't say enough great things about Deering Banjos. Check them out. Inside the Musician's Brain is also brought to you by Osiris Media. Osiris is the voice of the music world in podcast form, and they've been helping me make this podcast happen for many years. And I want to give you guys a couple hot tips. These are some other great shows in the Osiris family. And of course, I know you all are podcast listeners. You should check out No Simple Road. This is an awesome music podcast hosted by my friends Mel, Aaron, and Apple. And it 
Yeah, it really just gets into all the nooks and crannies of what it is to be an artist. They have great guests. The list is so long, I won't even get into it here, but they got my man Andy Frasco coming up, Eggies coming up. Definitely check out No Simple Road. And for all you fish people out there, if you love fish like I do, you will love the podcast Undermine, hosted in part by my friends RJB and Tom Marshall. I'm sure many of you are familiar with Tom. This is a deep dive into everything fish. Looking back at the past, looking forward to the future, lots of great stuff. Check out Undermine. We're also brought to you by Americana Vibes. That's the infamous String Dusters record label. All kinds of cool stuff coming out on Americana Vibes, not just our own music, but some really great acts in addition to the String Dusters, some podcasts, you name it. We got it going on over there, keeping really busy at Americana Vibes. Shout out to my team there. Fritz and Hillary, who are always working hard, helping me get this podcast out there to the world. So a few minutes from now, you're going to hear what is undoubtedly one of my favorite interviews that I've ever done for Inside the Musician's Brain. And I love all these interviews. I feel so lucky to get to make this podcast and to connect with all these incredible artists and pick their brains and have these deep conversations. It's really enlightening. I feel like I learn a ton in the process, and I hope that you all feel that as well, because that's that's really what it's all about. In preparation for these interviews, I do a bunch of research, and that includes listening to interviews, reading interviews, and of course, listening to a ton of music. I feel like the more prepared I am, the more I can really get on the level, get in the zone with whoever the guest is and really get deep and explore these topics more fully. And some of these interviews really have a life of their own where the script or the outline that I have kind of goes out the window and a much more spontaneous conversation ensues. And usually that is a very beautiful thing. Usually that's indicative of the fact that we're really going somewhere, that we're really getting into it. And in this particular talk, you're going to hear Chris cover a wide range of topics, but he really focuses on a pretty common theme here on Inside the Musician's Brain, and that is the importance of being present in the moment. And of course, that is a life lesson. He talks about it a lot in the context of music, but being present and how we achieve that, those are those are such big things, and those are things that musicians typically think pretty deeply about. I know I do. I know that most of the people around me do, so it comes up a lot. And the thing that I'm excited about here is that he boils it all down to a very simple principle, a simple mantra that for him, and I bet for a lot of other people too, can really be a gateway to being more present. And that mantra is simply that we must remember to remember. So I'll let him explain it more fully. It sounds a little weird out of context, I know, but in a nutshell, the idea is that after you've put in the time practicing, getting into your zone, and you know what that feeling is like, that feeling you're, you're trying to recreate, that zone you're trying to enter, ultimately, it's just the act of remembering to use those tools in the moment to connect to those practices that can open the door to finding a real flow, to being present, to connecting to your, you know, your truest expression. Because it's so 
easy to forget, right? That's that's the crazy thing. I wonder if you ever have lessons that you feel like you need to learn a million times before you actually get them to stick or get them into practice. You know, or if you're wondering like me, how hard do I need to get my ass kicked before I actually start to feel progress? Because when you're in the thick of it, whether it's performing or whatever it is you do, your mind gets going and you get caught up in thought and you're instantly knocked out of the zone. You're kind of in survival mode at that point and you forget. It's like your brain kind of gets scrambled. You're doing your best in that moment, but not ultimately living up to your own expectations. But if you can remember in that moment just to use what you've got, I know it sounds so simple, but if you can remember, you can catch yourself and you can come back to the present. And it's really not rocket science. It really just takes a lot of experience and a lot of repetitions. And of course, it takes a lot of work, right? There's work underneath this. So working on meditating, meditating is great, breath work, visualization, all great tools to help you quiet your mind and come back to the present. And I'm talking about work when you're away from your instrument, for example, you're not performing, you're building these pathways so that you can access them more easily, if you can remember. Now, Chris references a great acronym that the Wood Brothers use, which represents three of those techniques. BLT, the BLT stands for breathe, listen, and trust. And again, he'll unpack this more, but those are three simple techniques to tap into at that critical moment, all of which, again, need to be practiced, need to be honed. That's the work part, the work of building those pathways. But in the moment, those are invaluable tools to help you center yourself, help you come back to the present tools that jog the memory. That's the remember part. And I love the simplicity of the message here. And I guess to take it a step further, I love that there's something that you can actually apply because as a lot of these conversations unfold, I feel like I and different guests, we we unpack different aspects of it or talk about the experience. But this is something that you can really put into practice. And I know that I've been trying to reference this in my practice, performance, life, whatever. And of course, it's a work in progress, but there's something really resonant about this for me. There's a simple little thing that you can try to stay focused on because in the heat of the moment, you have to be realistic and know that you can't be thinking about a million things. You can't have a mental checklist of stuff you need to remember in the moment because you just got to be real about the fact that the moment is challenging and often chaotic. So the simpler we can keep it for ourselves, the better. And that's what I love so much about what Chris gets into here. He is not only deeply thoughtful about his music and his life, but he's also very articulate about his experiences and what he's learned from them. He's clearly a great teacher. And I just got to say, this interview was so cool for me because Chris is a legit musical hero of mine and some of my bandmates as well. And, you know, my guests fall into a lot of different categories, all amazing artists, but some are more my peers, some more up and comers, and some are 
legend status who have already made a huge impact on the music world. And Chris is definitely the latter. We were crazy MMW fans back in the day. I can remember discovering some of those early records, those early MMW records. So I'm talking about like Shaq Man, It's a Jungle in Here. And then we got into Ogogo and we were obsessed with that record. And Oh, there are so many of them. And I remember when my college housemates and I, and this was before I was playing music really seriously or professionally, I had actually just taken the instrument up, but we would hang out and we would passionately mime every solo and just generally be very fired up about the music. And that is so cool. That's what it's really all about. That is early inspiration in motion right there. And I can't thank Chris Wood and all the amazing musicians on those records for that. There's a lot of great stuff in this talk. So open your minds and let's jump ahead to my interview with Chris Wood. Here we go. When I step off of that train Better sit down and wait Cause the soul can't travel that fast And the best part of me Will surely be late Cause the soul can't travel that fast All right, we are here on Inside the Musician's Brain. My guest today is legendary bass player, a member of the amazing Wood Brothers, and of course of the seminal band, Medeski Martin and Wood, Chris Wood, welcome to the podcast, man. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me and and uh, and my brain. We're going to take a look inside that brain today, <laughs> and I couldn't be more excited about it. So, tell us how are you doing? I know the pandemic has brought some some big life changes for you. How are how are things these days? Uh, huge life changes. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm living in British Columbia, Canada, um, on a little island in the Southern Gulf. Uh, and uh, I mean, my wife bought a property here, but it's basically a farm, like a vegetable farm. So it's it's like if you know where the San Juan Islands are, it's sort of part of that group of islands, but on the right. Canadian side. So yeah, big life change. Didn't see it coming. It's just the pandemic. Um, it was just nuts. Uh, all the things that happened living in Nashville from a tornado that destroyed our neighborhood to yeah. I had a stroke, uh, you know, the pandemic, of course, all us musicians lost our jobs, the political strife, the riots, there was this thing called the Christmas bomber. I don't know if you heard of that. <laughs> it shook the whole downtown. This guy blew himself up yeah, in a camper. Yeah, RV, yeah. So it felt like living in a war zone. And by the end of that, um, my, <clears throat> my wife, who was Canadian and lived up here, prior to trying to live in Nashville, well, it was pretty clear that we weren't going to stay. It was like, all right, let's go back somewhere that's a little more sane. And so, so and so how is that treating you? Uh, it's incredible. I mean, it's so beautiful here. Um, uh, and when I say become a farmer, I like really mean it. Uh, yeah. I'm basically a laborer it's a it's a very heavy labor situation it's like all day every day working a field it's you know our farm is small like so it's not a it's not like a big mechanized operation it's it's but it's way bigger than gardening <laughs> so so it's it's like a very large version of hand gardening 
you know, we actually used tractor and, and have a tractor just to get it going and get it sort of in the shape that it needs to be. And then from then on, you know, <clears throat> we're doing everything by hand. So it's just all about keeping the soil structure and health. And so basically organic. That's farming. very, very cool, man. I'm an aspiring farmer myself, although I would consider myself more in the gardener category. <laughs> yeah, well, I used Just, to be. I didn't, you know, but my wife has is, is actually had run a farm before and has experience on this level and actually selling food, you know, mm -hmm. to the public. Um, so I was always a, a passionate gardener, but I never have done it on this scale before. And what do you guys grow? You name it, everything, like vegetables, every, every category of vegetables, you know, all kinds of roots from potatoes and sunchokes and beets and carrots and radishes and things like that to every kind of green you know from mustards and collards and kale and yeah. salad greens and arugula and then there's beans and peas and squashes and melons and you know just sure. all the all the veggies and and some of the fruits yeah there are a few things more gratifying than growing your own food and i'm assuming that taking that even a step further and being able to be a local source of food for your community, that's got to be a really gratifying thing. It's really gratifying, uh, it, you know, and that's starting to sink in. It's, it's really only our second year of this property. So, um, and it's, if you've ever done farming, <laughs> what you quickly realize is there is literally never enough time to do all the things that you have to do. It's okay. impossible. And uh, so it becomes like this time management equation. And then you have to get help. And yeah. so you have to get good at bringing other people onto your property and delegating jobs. And that's a whole other skill set. You know, yeah. even though it would be nice to be all alone, like a gardener, you know, it's small enough that you do everything yourself and yep. you enjoy the solitude. But when you get to the scale, you quickly realize you need some help. Well, that's very cool, man. I respect that. I love that. And let's uh, let's shift gears and talk a little bit about music. So the Wood Brothers have a new record, which by the time this podcast airs will be out. Heart is the Hero out on April 14th, I believe. You guys already have a couple singles out on Spotify, Pilgrim, and Line Those Pockets. Great new tracks. When the groove drops in on Pilgrim, it's just like... <clears throat> All right, there's that classic <laughs> Wood Brothers drive. You know, you guys have this amazing synergy of such soulful playing, such soulful artists, but also the music has has all this energy. So tell us a little bit about this this record, the writing process, the recording process. How did this one go down? Well, uh, I mean, unlike our last record, Kingdom in My Mind, um, which we started by improvising, uh, we had just moved to our our now what is our studio, and we're just getting it set up, and and we're like, well, let's just let's let's like just improvise and and set up and have some fun and just get used to this space, and uh, and so you know our engineer Brooke Sutton had the the Pro Tools rig set up and just was like, well, I might as well throw up some mics and you know just let's just have fun and see if everything's working, and we had such a blast improvising that. And it, it just felt inspired. And so for that record, we basically took these long improvisations, edited them down, wrote music, wrote lyrics over them, and you know used the computer to sort of mold them down and mm -hmm. finish these things. So it was this really interesting organic process 
of really starting with the music, having no songs, right? Because you play mm-hmm. different when you don't have a song. Yeah, you, there's you know you, different musical things happen. If you write a song first and say, "Come up with the music," then it's just different, right? It's a different sure. process. So uh, then you know the pandemic happened. I moved away, and um, I am not living in Nashville anymore. So we in one sense approached this more traditionally where we made sure to have a group of material that was written beforehand and uh unlike a lot of bands during the pandemic we didn't do anything i was really jealous of all the bands that kind of created their little covid pods and uh and did all this creative work together during the shutdown. Yeah. And then some people came out with not one but two records during during that part of the pandemic and got really prolific. And for us and the things going on in my life, it just wasn't conducive to that. And um, so, in a way, I feel like this records are our pandemic record. It's it's okay. a buildup of all these ideas and material that sort of slowly piece themselves together during the pandemic and and uh and then we had this material ready and we got excited about doing it completely analog to two inch tape i love it and uh you know most of the time talking about this stuff is only interesting to music nerds and people who actually record but it was really profound like to 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 not have a screen yeah the idea, you know, the thing that we take for granted as uh, recording artists and people who do this for a living, for the most part, we take for granted there's always this big screen in the control room and you see all the wave files. And so if you record a song, you see where the drum entrance is, you see where the background vocals come in. And, and as you're listening back, you're watching this thing, right? And you're yeah. like, oh, here it comes. Here's the thing. And it's just like everything else in our lives that the way computers have have changed the way we do every single thing during the day we're constantly staring at the screen and letting it you know inform us about what's going to happen or what is happening somewhere or so the way we use our senses literally has been transformed by these things that we take for granted and use constantly every day yeah. right yeah so uh, when you take that away uh, and there's no screen and you instead we you know did it to two inch tape and we used a 16 track head. Uh, most people a lot of times use 24 tracks, but you can get a 16 track head so that every track actually has literally more space on the yeah. tape, mm-hmm. right? And then it has sort of a bigger, fatter sound that's sure. really great. You're more limited. You don't have the tracks, but... It's worth it because it sounds so good, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So you perform a song and you go into the control room and you press play and there's just music. That's it. There's nothing to stare at. Uh, there's no waveforms to watch. And you really, it's a profound difference the way you experience the music. And as the artist who then has to listen to that and make a decision like, do we like this take? Do we like that take? How is the bridge? You know, that the analytical part of our job, it becomes more uh, instantaneous. Like, you really trust your gut more. Sure. 
right? When you use a computer, you can do literally anything to the yeah. music you want with a computer. It's just, it's amazing, but it's too much. And it's hard not to listen without thinking the whole time, like, oh, what if we did that? And what if we did that? But if you don't have that option and you just play the tape back, all you're thinking is, does this make me feel good or not? Yeah, and, and for our listeners out there, just for a little bit of context, basically what Chris is talking about is the difference between a modern digital recording studio console setup where you can change any track at any time. You can basically tweak the music in any way you want. You can go in and fix any little thing. Whereas when you're recording to tape, not only are you benefiting in an audio sense, you get this more analog and, and to listeners out there, especially audiophiles, you get something preferable there. But you also take away all those possibilities. And I think what I hear you saying is that that changes our brains, that changes the way that we think about things, our expectations, what's possible. 100%. And, and then ultimately yeah. that informs how we approach the music and the process. Yeah, if you, if you listen, like with the computer situation and you're seeing those waveforms on the screen, it's kind of like, you know, the way uh, movies and special effects, you can take a, a picture or a video and then alter it to the point where it's completely different and, you know, magically make an alien or something. Yeah. You can do the same thing with music, right? You can manipulate it any way you want. So if you're listening back to the song you just recorded and you're watching it on the screen like l listening by watching is basically equals thinking huh. and you just you don't you don't whereas without it and i always go back to this analogy of of dancing uh if you if so if there's a band starts playing a beat the only the, the way to dance obviously is just listen to the beat yeah. and then don't think right it's and intuitive. let like how is that music gonna make you move and if you're too self-conscious or you're thinking about it too much, you're not going to move very naturally or in a very appealing way, maybe. But and also, if you're not trying to show off. But if you're just, if it's an honest, just listening and like trusting that music will move me. Yeah. I don't have to do it. Like if I pay attention close enough to the music, it will do it to me, <laughs> right? Yeah. So that's the space we're always trying to get in when we play. But it's also when you listen back to tape and you don't watch the music on a screen, it sort of does the same thing. It just hits you only with your ears and your body. Yeah. And then you end up making more quick and intuitive decisions about the music, like, you know, one take over another take. And, um, and the mistakes, you know, you kind of let them slide a little bit because you're like, okay, I, that wasn't what I meant to do, but it, it works and it has a personality. So you, you let go of a lot of things that you would clean up with a computer and usually to the detriment of the music. You know, often we clean up too much sure. in, in the with the computers and we massage all the soul out of a piece of music. So, yeah, those rough edges are good. Yeah, it brings you into that space, that present space with music that can be really hard to find where not all mistakes are created equal, right? Some mistakes, and this especially in terms of the way that we perceive our own playing, but some some mistakes can detract from the musical statement, while, while other mistakes, if you're really on rails with the music, present with the other musicians or with the audience, whatever, a mistake sometimes 
can have almost to me a positive impact on the music. Hundred percent. You're hearing these musicians work things out in real time, and that's, yeah, that's the humanity. Kind of, yeah, exactly. That's all the humanities in the mistakes and the the sort of the skill comes in is like how you recover from a mistake. Yeah. And so if you can be vulnerable, like I, I remember being uh, so perplexed when I was younger and I'd watch, you know, older, more seasoned musicians perform and uh, they'd make some kind of mistake on stage and they laughed. Yeah. I was like, wow, how do you make a mistake and laugh? That's so cool. Like, I just beat myself up the whole time. Like, <laughs> like, how do you even get to that point where you laugh when you mess up? I know what you, you mean. Know, I, I, I know take myself mean. so seriously. Like, I didn't know how to be human. Like, how to just, like, well, I screwed up, and I'm cool if everyone out in the room watching this sees it. That's yeah. totally fine with me, because I'm just human. Like, what the hell are you going to do? I know. I think of, that makes me think of a few musicians who I look up to. I always reference Jerry Douglas. He... He's a guy who, if you're ever watching him play and he makes a mistake, look out because he's coming back with something that's got as much intention as really, any yeah. part of what he plays. And I also think of Schofield, you know, and and we'll we'll yeah. we'll, we'll get to talking about Sco here in a minute because well, I, I think really... that the mistake what it does is it creates something. Uh, so you know, a great player like Jerry or, or Schofield or you know anybody who like really knows their instrument and and has a lot of a lot of experience like they're improvising they're in the moment but in the flow of what they're doing sometimes you know like oh i know where this is going and and so i i you know there's there's certain like connections that happen and you know what's going to happen next because you're you're feeling the flow of something and then you mess up and this beautiful thing happens when you mess up is the way you recover is by listening like in that microsecond where you realized it's not going like you thought all your attention needs to go to everything that's happening in order to recover as quickly as possible. Yeah. And that's the space you want to be in, ideally, 100% of the time. That's where the magic is. Absolutely. So yeah. the mistakes are windows into those those moments of like, oh, shit, pay attention or, you know, you're going to, like, fall off the train. Yeah. I heard you talk about that on – I was listening – um, I was driving this morning listening to a podcast interview that you did recently, and you were talking about how listening can often be the most important thing that you're doing when you're playing. It's not what you're playing. It's not focusing on yourself. It's actually opening your brain, opening your soul up to that which is around you and letting that be your guide. I, I mean, that's it. It's, uh, and I mean, I take it as far as saying, like, listening, you play – the doing that you think you're doing, you're doing it because you're reacting to something. So the thing that we talk about this a lot in the band, and I've thought about this a lot over the years, and this is basically how I practice music, is practicing, uh, <laughs> it's a trust exercise, basically. It's like, can I, if I, if I need to play along with a, with a drum beat, and I'm grooving with a drum beat, can I only listen to the drum beat? 100% of my attention is on the beat and trust that my fingers, my body will groove with it without mm -hmm. thinking about it at all, without even listening. You know, you hear yourself 
that that part you don't have to work on. Like, if anything, we need to work on listening to ourselves less, right? Because because it's natural. If you want to be a good musician, you're you're always self consciously microscoping everything you do. But then, how you're supposed to groove uh, with what's happening around you if you're so focused on yourself, right? So. I, I even have this exercise that sometimes when I'm teaching, it's it's so simple, but uh, you know, the, to get into that state, it's 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 just what you'd think it would be. Like you can't be in that state without breathing, and without having being loose in your body, right? Mm-hmm. Very basic stuff. And then there's a certain joy that happens when you're in that state where you really are locked in and grooving with your your bandmates, right? So. The exercise basically is this. It's like I'll come up if I'm teaching a bass player, for example, and it could be any instrument, but it's like, all right, come up with a really simple bass line, just repetitive, looping bass line. Okay, keep doing that. And then while you're doing that, make sure, are you breathing? Is your body relaxed? And and then listen to the drum beat, except here's how you listen to it. Can you enjoy it? So that's sort of the thing. It's like any situation I'm in, it's like I challenge myself, can I enjoy this moment? You know, even if it's like something like doing the dishes. And what happens when you ask yourself that question is you you start paying attention to what's happening instead of thinking about all your crap and your anxieties and stuff. So to enjoy something, to enjoy a moment means literally to pay attention to it. So if I'm going to enjoy a drum beat, I'm going to like, be so tapped into it, listening so closely that, and I'm just like, oh, here comes the snare, and oh, and the hi hats right in between, and I'm just all my hundred percent of my attention is focused on how cool that beat is, and I'm just enjoying it. Yeah. So it's like, can I just do that with my attention part of my being, sure. and just trust that my fingers can keep playing that bass line. Yeah, that's with zero thought, right? And still breathing, you're still relaxed, you're loose, it's all joy and it's only listening to that drum beat. That's so, awesome. You know, if you have something repetitive, like a simple bass line, it's not too hard to get to that that space where you're actually doing all those things at the same time. So then when it gets really interesting <laughs> is you you'll do like eight bars of grooving on the baseline, making sure, always prioritizing that joyful attention to the beat. Uh, and, and even if it means messing up with your fingers, who cares? As long as you're only paying attention to the beat, you'll recover in a microsecond. It doesn't matter. The closer you're listening to the beat, the faster you recover, right? So then it's like, can, when you get into improvising, can you can you be in that space for eight bars, doing the baseline, and then for the next eight bars, improvise but still only listen to the drums and that's the sort of quantum leap it's like can you keep that headspace the pure joy of you're just reacting to this other thing that's not you can you keep that when you're supposed to quote solo (laughs) Mm -hmm. when it you know it comes your point your moment to be (laughs) focused on as the soloist or or this little improvisational moment it's you hear people losing that that groundedness sometimes when it's all of a sudden time for them to to solo yeah, or, that's, or that's, improvise. That's the moment when you're 
most naturally going to be focused on yourself. And I love that it's, you're talking. Exactly. Yeah. And I you get tense. <laughs> Usually right. you stop breathing, you tense up, and then you start listening too much to yourself. So the, the exercise is the baseline for eight, improvising for eight, back and forth. And you just do it over and over again till you can keep that attention and joy on the beat in the improvisational eight bars, right? And that, so it's like you're always returning to the baseline as the grounding point, reminding yourself, okay, right, right. I'm supposed to feel this all the time, all the time. And then keep that joy while you're playing at the improvised eight bars. Yeah. And keep, so it's exactly the same. And if you do it enough, those two sections of eight bars feel the same because your attention is, and all your inspiration is coming from a beat that's not you. Sure. I love that. And I, I love that you're talking about that, too, in a practice capacity. It's great advice for aspiring musicians, because I think a lot of people think that there's this magic that's supposed to happen when you get on stage or when you perform with other people or in front of people. But actually, you're trying to slip into a zone that you've created and fostered in your practice. And it's like you have this, to you have to practice it, you know, and it's and it's what the beauty of it is it's you practice it you can practice it while you're practicing everything else or anything else you want to practice right so whatever it is if it's a tune or a scale or a rhythm something that you feel like you need to work on you practice what i'm talking about while you're doing that yeah that's so like that's if awesome. you know if you're working with even just with a metronome it's the same thing like even something as sterile as a metronome can you enjoy the metronome mm. Yeah, that's a that's a challenge, but it's again, it's it's something that you need to work on. It's almost like a good practice session oftentimes feels just kind of like a meditation, you know, and and you're, you know, there's a time it's like to practice. Exactly. It's exactly what it is. It's a meditation. There's time to practice technique and there's time to learn tunes and work on repertoire, but then there's a time to practice sort of this top level thing, the the state that you want to be in when you're actually yeah. presenting music. And what I'm saying is you practice that constantly while you're practicing all that right. other stuff. Right. It's it's the thing that you're practicing. It is it is, in fact it's the priority and you should prioritize that over playing correctly. In order to get to the place where you can play correctly while feeling that way, while being that open and listening, you know, you always prioritize the feeling over the correctness of what your hand is doing. Yeah, because technique... That's, that's how you get there. Technique can take you a ways, but ultimately it doesn't do you much good unless you're present with the music. And But, but I, the yeah. irony is you're working on that. You're probably doing your best practice in, in those different areas too when you're focusing on this one thing. You're 100%. Kind of, yeah, can, everything. I mean, it's it all goes together. And... You know, I'm sure everybody who plays music and tries to be good at music has experienced the thing where they're working on something alone in their practice room and, and they're getting pretty damn good at it. But then they go up on stage and it's just not there, mm -hmm. right? They, like they can't bring it, the, the, all those things they're capable of in the practice room, they can't bring it onto the stage and do it at the same level. Yeah. And it's because they're not practicing what I'm talking about, this, this state that you need to be in. Yeah. I, th I always think about it when I first like, really got clued in. This is during the Medesky Martin and Wood days. So we, <laughs> early days touring with Medesky Martin and Wood, we'd 
pull up someplace. You know, it's early days. Not many people know who we are. And it's some just disgusting club in the middle of nowhere. And there's a pool table in the back. And there's like five people in the whole place. And we couldn't give a shit about this gig who's i mean it's just the whole thing just is such a downer in a way that we got up and you set up and you play but you don't even care if it's good because who cares you know and what happens we have the best musical night of the tour right because there's zero pressure and we're just enjoying each other and the music and there's not a single thought about oh you know all these people out there listening there's just there's no pressure right and then we get into some other gig we're like oh god it's sold out tonight and you know and then the music eh, we got through it but why didn't have that magic from the other night so i've just over the years tried to really deconstruct that like what I mean, obviously, it's a gift, and and some things are out of your control, but there's a bunch of stuff that's in your control, and it comes down to presence and awareness and really simple stuff, like, am I breathing? That's Like, that, number one, will trigger a lot of these other things, and, you know, can I play this certain thing that's a little bit challenging for me and just breathe naturally and calmly? That alone will take you a long way. So, and then it's almost like, you know, I, I feel like I, I'm... I'm hearing you say that there's this magic that can unfold when the pressure's off. But then what is the process of interpreting and, as you say, deconstructing that so that you can actually harness whatever that energy is when the, exactly. pres- when the pressure is on? When the pressure's on. So you want to learn how to reverse engineer the feeling. So if you, if you really think about one of those magic nights where everything's clicking, it's effortless and you get really down to details like what is your body doing what's you know and obviously you're relaxed and so you're probably just breathing calmly uh and your body's loose um so two obvious things to work on in the practice room and be aware of if you want to recreate that feeling yeah and then there's the joy part that I'm talking about which which is another way of saying listening to your bandmates more than you're listening to yourself and deriving joy from what they're playing, you know, and loving what they're playing. And then that's going to inspire you to play with them in the best way. Yeah. Now that's, that's an awesome potential segue here to MMW, which I want to talk about, but really (laughs) quick, you mentioned breathing and I've actually got a previous episode of my podcast where in the intro, I talk all about, breath work and and the James Nestor book breathe and and all of the undeniable physiological evidence that breathing deeply which oftentimes when you're really concentrating on something you'll stop that you know and yep. and and how it can affect your body you know physiologically yeah. and how it can take you in this zone so is that something that you focus on as you're getting ready to go on stage too? I focus on it. It, Here's the hardest thing about all this stuff. Remembering to remember to do it. (sighs) Sure. So I work on, if I can remember, I'll do it all day. Every single moment of the day, you know, but 
But, you know, of course, like I get hooked into thoughts like everyone and, and go down the rabbit holes of thought and anxiety and self whatever. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'll do it. Of course, we do it um, any time. I've practiced it enough. I mean, it's literally when I'm practicing, that is 100% all I'm practicing. Mm-hmm. I might be working on a song, intonation, just all the usual things that people practice when they practice their instrument. But it's only about ultimately what's happening inside me like you can't see it but i'm working on how i pay attention and enjoy the music which translates to relaxation breathing naturally right um so yeah well as soon as we start warming up of course i'm thinking about that uh how can i how can i sing a harmony and be the best in tune don't listen to myself listen to my brother and jono and their pitch will tell me how to be in tune. If I just listen to myself, obviously I can't sing in tune with them, right? So it sure. all goes together. And then I do it on stage all this, all the time. We, we talk about it. We've sort of dilute, um, concentrated it into this thing we call the BLT. <laughs> Tell us about the BLT. <laughs> so the BLT is sort of all this stuff I'm talking about, like condensed into something that you can just remind yourself in a split second on stage. If you're having a moment, we all do it. Uh, where you're just feeling a little off or the sound isn't just right or there's just something you that something that's distracting you and keeping you out of the music. The BLT just stands for Breathe, Listen, and Trust. I love that. That's and awesome. so just BLT and then suddenly, instantly changes your whole vibe on stage. As soon as you remember that, you have to remember it. That's and the, the hardest part. the key is to remember, yeah. The key is to remember and literally that's why I practice it when I'm alone, because if I don't practice it when I'm alone, I forget to remember to do it. <laughs> That's sure. almost the part you need to practice the most, that you have to remind yourself that it's always an option to be in this space. You can yeah. breathe, listen, and trust 24 hours a day if you, if you could actually have the presence to remember to do it. But we, so we get lost in our thoughts. So just like in meditation or yoga or something, when, when you have someone, okay, back to the breath, they, you know, gently remind yourself. If you've ever listened to a meditation, yeah. you're always being reminded, like, it's come okay that you lost it. It's just fine. It's perfectly human, but come back to your breath. Just yep. keep coming back. And then you'll get distracted. Come back to the breath. <laughs> yeah. It's just that. And we'll do it on stage all night long. Yeah, where I'll BLT it and I'm in the zone and then something happens or a technical thing happens, throws me off for a minute, mm, BLT it again and I'm back, you know? The BLT concept, which I love, amazing advice for anyone who plays music out there. It reminds me a little bit of this great book. I'll drop you a quick recommendation here. My buddy Ben Krakauer turned me on to this really cool book called The Extended Mind by Andy Murphy Paul. And... The concept, I haven't finished the book yet, but in a nutshell, it basically says that everything in today's world teaches, trains our brains to look inward and connect to right the self part that we're trying to sort of ease up on with meditation or breathwork practice. BLT is like telling your mind, connect to the other minds that are around you. And don't, don't think that it's all happening right here between the ears. Our minds are actually intuitively connected to everything else if we let them. And way back in the day, there's a lot of research that shows 
that we were potentially much more intuitively connected, for example, to nature. Like the way mm. animals, for example, know that a tsunami is coming hours before it hits the shore. They sure. have this connection that's fostered. And this is like a way for us to remember to get out of our own heads, but to take it even a step further, to connect to the minds and the souls that are around us. Well, it's, you know, it's all the stuff you've heard a million times if you're into any kind of Buddhism or Zen or, you know, just this illusion of separateness, right? Right. And um, it's it's really literally, I mean, I just, I'm kind of thinking this, thinking of this right now uh, for the first time in a way and making a connection with that. But the BLT thing is literally just, it's acknowledging that we all think we're this individual who does everything and that the source of the doing is some idea that we had. Right. Right. It's like your mind saying, you should do this now. And then we do it. When in fact, I feel like that really is an illusion. Um, and sometimes subconsciously, but in, if you practice what we're talking about, it becomes more conscious. We're actually doing not by some idea in our head, but it's all a reaction to our environment. Mm -hmm. So it really, there's no separation between you and the environment when you're really in that state. And people talk about this when they do psychedelics and, you know, have altered consciousness experiences that that boundary between self and environment disappears mm -hmm. and it's all one and the same. So... This is like a, a way to get there without drugs. <laughs> it's just, it's just, you know, but it, it takes practice. The drug isn't there to do it for you. So you have to right. train your mind to, to, to get to that place. Yeah, that's, for me, that's the real sort of take home part that you can extrapolate out of this is that it's not magic. It's actually something that you just work on, that you practice. And, you can look at it like you're practicing some form of magic, some form of connectedness, you know, dissolving the sense of self, the doer, all these things. But it's actually something that you have to work on, you know, and it takes discipline. And, it, and it's also a journey of self-understanding, self-discovery that's going to be a little bit different for everyone. But ultimately, that idea, I'm going to share that with the String Dusters. I'm going to, I'm going to it's, serve it's up humbling. some BLTs. I mean, well, that's, that's the thing. It's, and it goes against so much of our culture um, because, and as, as artists too, because, you know, artists, especially these days, we're supposed to be the doers, the creators. We're supposed to be the ones coming up with things that's ours and, you know, uh, and it's so, the pressure is crazy these days. If you think like back, like in the old recording days, like in the early days of, of the recorded music industry, you had someone who composed a piece of music and then you had an arranger and then you had the performer, like maybe the instrumentalists and then you had like maybe the star vocalist. So... In other words, for this one classic recording that we love, there were so many people who had different jobs that made that final product. And, and then you had an incredible producer and an rec incredible recording engineer. Like for a great, I, I don't know, like oh, I'm trying to think of a good example, or Ella Fitzgerald or some, someone like that where it's like they're singing someone else's song 
who composed that song, and someone else arranged this whole orchestra to back her up. And then someone else created this amazing studio that recorded her, and the engineer and the producer is overseeing the whole thing. Such a big team effort. Now, every musician has a computer and a microphone, and they're expected to be the arranger, the composer, the amazing performer. You know, the pressure is... That's just crazy. It's like... And uh, so, yeah, some people surface who can actually pull that shit off on right. YouTube and TikTok, right? And there's, there are the, the freaks out there who can pull off the production end, the, the creativity, the performance, 100%. But um, for most of us, you know, it takes, it takes a team or, and it takes uh, some humble realization that the the real the music comes from reacting to our environment yeah yeah you it know? reminds me it reminds me a little bit of something that i read that you said in an interview about how artists years ago were able to have like this mysterious element around them and these days with 24/7 access to social media and also the expectation that if you're an artist you're going to be you know, saturating those outlets with new content. It's like, it puts this pressure on people to do everything, to be everything, to be on all the time. And there's something about that that kind of runs counter to a really fundamental element of being an artist and having some mystery to what you do. And and it's like, a lot of that has been lost these days, you know, or at least is very hard to recreate. Yeah, uh, it's a it's just a completely different medium, and and uh, I, I, yeah, we're, and but there's people who are good at it. I think you know, with any new medium, it, it takes a while. And someone like me, who's old enough to have experienced the music industry before the the internet, you know, it's harder. It's harder for me to adjust and find that you know. How to, how to have a voice in, you know, social media, for example, like how to really have a voice. And, um, but yeah, the, the, before the internet, I think the mystery, yeah, certain artists, you had an album cover and there was this amazing photo on the front. And, yeah. uh, that's about all you knew. And then maybe you go to see them live, but you didn't have a whole bunch of information about them. And so your mind, your imagination filled in the rest. And yeah. these days, we don't rely on our imaginations to fill in anything because you just go on Instagram and Facebook and TikTok. And That's right. It's, it's just, it's, it's like too much, you know? It's yeah. all being filled in for you. There's no space to come up with your own <laughs> perception of yeah. anybody. We'll get right back to my interview with Chris Wood after this very short break. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little a little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. 
Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that that uh, has impacted your life, uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers. Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe Grind podcast. Why you gotta get so great? Another really cool thing I remember reading in that same interview was how it's kind of getting back to that performance mindset thing and being present with the music. You were talking about how clarity comes from being in the moment and listening. And you also said something really interesting. You said you never take credit, which I never think, take credit. which I think is really cool. Like what, what exactly do you mean by that? Well, it's so, if, if you want to stay in that space, well, if you're in that space, it comes pretty obvious that you're, it, it, because it literally feels like you're not doing it. When you get into the zone, you don't feel like it's just happening. You yeah. don't feel like you're doing it. There's no thought. It's an instantaneous reaction to, again, going back to this, the analogy of like playing with a drum beat, right? I'm just hearing that drum and reacting to it so quickly, so instantaneously. That's how you groove. Who's coming up with that? It doesn't feel like it's me. Now, if if I if part of my brain, my my ego, hears something I'm playing, and says, "Wow, that was that was pretty awesome," then that's it. I'm gone. I'm not in the zone anymore. And and just it's the same thing as if you make a you know a mistake. I'm putting that in quotes. But if you think you made a mistake and then you start beating yourself up again about it it's just as bad as patting yourself on the back for doing something great it does it has the same effect it gets you out of the zone of paying attention to what really matters in that moment uh and listen to the drums and play the groove you know but it's a it's a hard that's what i meant it's a hard thing to do though and we as humans with our egos all fired up especially playing music in front of people i mean it's it's sort of a perfect storm for the ego. So is that also something that you feel like you've had to practice and work on over your career? Like you catch oh, yourself, yeah. okay. You catch yourself taking credit and you kind of need to bit by bit build up this instinct to not do that. Yeah. It's, it's, it fits right in. It's actually the, the, if you think of sort of the four things, if there was a list that <laughs> I've boiled it down to four things, you know, the breath, uh, the your body, which should be relaxed or ready, depending on how you want to think about it, because you're not like floppy. You're you're ready, but you're not committing to any position. So mm-hmm. it's a it's a form of relaxation that's ready for action. So there's breath. There's the relaxed body. There's the joy that we talked about, which is another way of saying paying attention. And then the last thing, if all those things are clicking, don't don't take credit. Okay. Like. You know, you, you're just there to serve the music. It's not a you. It's not about you. Um, the Rick Rubin book that just came out, he, I, heard, I was listening to a podcast with him. He has this beautiful saying, which is, self-expression is not about you. And that's his way of saying what I've been saying for the past 20 minutes, is that y- y- when you're really what looks like expressing yourself to other people and and playing great 
it's not it's it, it's it's I'm actually not doing it. I'm just paying attention to everything that's happening around me and reacting instantaneously. So mm. it's actually everything but me that's doing the expressing. I just happen to be the one moving my fingers or opening my mouth, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's so that's, that's such so self-expression stuff. is a confusing word because it's the it sounds like the opposite of what it really is when it's in the most magical sense of it. Right. Because that self part, so much of our world that we come up in tells us that that self part is so important, the doer, us, yeah. you know, and but really and, it's, and it's okay to take credit later. I mean, like, you know, when the when the show is done and you're back on the bus or whatever, like sure, like hey, that was a great show and man, that part I played, I that was great. <laughs> you know, it's fine then, but when you're up on stage in the heat of the moment doing the thing, there's no space for that. That's yeah. just going to throw you off. I'm really yeah. glad you I I'm glad you said that because that is a confusing part of this too because it is okay to enjoy and love what we do, whether that's music, whatever your passion is. Yeah. But the part about extracting our most essential statement in the act of doing that thing, when you're in that moment, that's got to be kind of something else. You almost, ha- you almost have to separate those two ideas. It's, very, it's two very different versions of joy. Yeah, there's the ego joy is, of course thing we all know what that's like and being smug and happy with yourself because you just did a good job at something or you're feeling good or you just worked out and you're looking good you know that's like ego joy the kind of joy i'm talking about is uh when yourself disappears yeah and doesn't exist anymore and it's way more joyful guaranteed (laughs) Yeah. yeah you know and lasting like it's always there. If you want to tap into it, that joy is always there. So again, I could be in any situation. I could be uh, talking to someone, taking a walk, doing the dishes, doing something I hate and that's hard and mundane. And I ask myself, is it possible that I can enjoy myself right now? Like, can you do it? It's like a challenge. Yeah. And uh that's just remembering to remember. And because of course you can. Yeah. Like if I do the dishes and, and I'm like, can I enjoy it? All of a sudden I'm like, wow, check out the temperature of the water. And, <laughs> you know, if I, if I do it this way, it's like a dance and I get it done faster. And suddenly you're kind of having fun with it. But before I asked myself that question, what I was doing, I was like thinking about all the other things I have to do in the future. And I'm getting stressed out about it because the dishes are taking so damn long. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's a fun challenge. Like just, if you can remember to ask yourself, like, can I enjoy this moment? Like, and then what happens? You just start paying it to, suddenly your environment comes into focus and you yeah. just start paying attention to everything around you. And a little secret, you can reverse engineer the joy and they've studied this scientifically by just smiling. Yeah, Even I, if you're not feeling it yet. But it, it literally, it, it brings the feeling from your face into your body and then you kind of are more present. Yeah, this is so awesome. Chris, you're the man. This is so great. I can't wait to <laughs> I can't wait to share this with people. It's really cool to hear these concepts explained by people who have really put in the time because there's there's so much there and as I said earlier, it is it is going to be your own journey when you undertake these things, but there are these 
fundamental pieces of it. And like what you just said, the recognition that we have a choice in our lives in everything that we do, we have this choice. And if you can enact that little piece of agency, if you can connect to it, man, it's, it extends so far beyond just, you know, being in the zone on stage. It's like being in the zone in life oh, it's, in anything it's, you do. It's every moment you're awake. Yeah. And, the, and you said it choice, just rem- but remembering that you have a choice. Yeah. I think it's so easy to forget. I forget constantly all day that I have a choice about yeah. how to feel. But then when I remember, I can feel however I want. Yeah. All right. Now, one thing I don't want to forget before we wrap this interview is we got to get busy on some MMW, man. One of my, all right. One of my favorite <laughs> bands of all time. And I texted, so I texted my college bandmates this morning. I just texted them a link to Where's Sly on Spotify. And because that's one of a few jams that when I was in college, because like I didn't, I didn't get into banjo because of bluegrass. You know, I was into the Flectones. I was into Schofield. You know, I was into, you know, I was into Steely Dan. I was into like just anything that was cool and different. But, but there was, you know, I think a common thread of uniqueness in, in the music that I was drawn to. And man, MMW, you guys really one of the most unique, influential bands I know of. And if you haven't checked them out, they're this incredible fusion of like the sound and energy of jazz but with heavy grooves and then this incredible freedom in the music and really to me kind of ahead of your time and I just was curious to ask you know back in the day when you guys were getting rolling like who were you looking at as influences both from a musical perspective and also like from a career perspective like where did you see this music existing live, where, mm. did, where did you see that it could go? Yeah, that, that's an interesting question because there was really nobody. There was, yeah. no, there was no roadmap for the kind of music that we were starting to create and what you're supposed to do to get it out into the world. We had nobody. We were based in New York City, and this is like early to mid-90s, and... Everybody that we knew from this kind of downtown New York music scene, all the people that we knew and played with, and we lived in the East Village, and it was just an incredible scene. It was so great and so concentrated then because the, the, that part of town hadn't been gentrified yet. And, and so all the musicians lev- lived in a very small, relatively small space in Manhattan, close together. Um, All of those people, for the most part, in that scene were making their money and and spending most of their careers touring in Europe. Okay. And we, you know, being young and just starting this band, we didn't have a record out yet, and uh, but we were playing at places like the Knitting Factory and CBGBs, the Gallery, and and we realized, like, well. if we can play for the door in New York City, like why don't we just start going other places in the U.S. and play for the door? Because <laughs> you know, we didn't we didn't have the clout yet to uh, be invited over to play all the European jazz festivals, and mm-hmm. you know that's where the money was, and that's how a lot of people we knew were made a living. So everyone in our scene thought we were crazy, but we started booking U.S. tours and touring like a rock band. Uh, in a van and you know in the early early days you know it's classic just sleeping on people's floors and oh i know uh, it well man 
Yeah, <laughs> right. And 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 then as we did that and started meeting the right people, like you know John Medeski, incredible keyboard player and an amazing piano player, but hated digital pianos. He wanted something real, you know. And so we couldn't tour with a piano. So that's where it's like, well. What about like a B3 organ? And then what about like a Wurlitzer? Oh, like that's okay. real. And oh, clavinet, that's real. Like that's a real instrument. Things are vibrating. It's not digital. And so he felt he could really express himself on those instruments, even though piano was kind of like his first love. Yeah. Um, yeah. So th that's really how it started. And then we just built this little circuit in the US. Um, <laughs> and it was like a word of mouth thing pre-internet again so uh word got out a lot um, from tapers okay. or just word of mouth right. and because uh, we're talking like early 90s here your guys first record notes from the underground i i think it was like 92 right when that record came out notes yeah yeah recorded 91 i think so yeah i think it came okay. out 92 it's interesting because a similar thing happened you know, some years later in bluegrass where there's just like, there was no path, you know, and a yonder mountain string band string cheese come along and they're just like, Hey, we're going to, we're going to take this thing and add some rock production and go out there and forge our own path. And, you know, yeah. a, a lot of us like the string dusters have really benefited from that. And it sounds like you guys did this earlier iteration of that. And it's really cool to hear. I know just because I didn't really have, a chance, you know, I was pretty young when that was going down and I didn't really have a chance to see you guys. I have seen you a few times, of course, you know, in more recent years because MMW, of course, still active. You guys just don't play that many shows. But um, yeah. these early records, like It's a Jungle in Here, you know, Shack Man, I mean, these were like big records for me and the people that I enjoyed music with, played music with. And then A Go-Go was like earth-shaking for us you know that was really mm. a next level thing how did you guys connect with Schofield how did that one come to be well <laughs> I guess just to quickly to say like I'm just thinking of this in hindsight like what what made it special early on is I think we were basically a jazz trio right uh in in the sense that that's how we improvised together that's how we interacted mm -hmm. um but as far as the notes and the grooves, we were drawing from a bunch of other stuff that was not jazz traditionally, right? right. From R&B and hip-hop and gospel and blues and whatever, you name it. Um, but, but So we'd take all those influences, but we'd still interact and play together the way that like a classic jazz trio yep. would interact and play, right? And so everyone's sort of trading roles and, you know... Uh, sometimes accompanying, sometimes taking the lead, you know, there's solos, there's, you know, just in the way you think of a jazz trio, but but the vocabulary of the music was a, a bunch of other stuff, and a yeah. lot of it was funky, and Billy Martin was not a jazz drummer in the sense of uh, having studied, like, traditional jazz, but he was a great improviser and and uh, incredible Brazilian um, percussionist, um, and hip hop drummer, and so he had, he ha he played like a jazz drummer in his sensibility, but but the actual you know the beats were not traditional jazz, mm -hmm. you know, like it didn't not in a swinging way, yeah. but he did swing because hip hop and go go music swings. So 
Um, so he did swing, but it wasn't like... <laughs> so that's what made it work somehow, is you could oh, like, put jazz with his beat, and, and it created this new thing that still swung, but it was more modern and... Yeah, and just and just and just three guys, you know, and so much sound. There's a lot of great guests, obviously. On there's so many great records that you guys have put out over the years, but the core of it, you know, it's like I was saying when we first started talking about about MMW. It's like the sound and energy of jazz, but with this groove and freedom. That to me, that's why I connected with it because it was just something really new and really unique. But, but a sort of reconfiguration of a lot of things that I already like, but just in this new form. You know, so was, Schofield's daughter um, was a fan. And okay. uh, so at that time in the mid-90s, we are spending, we, we've been touring a lot and to the point where we kind of just gave up our New York apartments because we were gone so much. Mm-hmm. But then we didn't want to tour during the winter as much. And so we had this connection to Hawaii, and one thing led to another, and we ended up renting this shack in the jungle uh, on the big island. Shackman, um, right? That's where that's, that's where, that, where we recorded yeah. Shackman. So we would basically just go and spend the winters, like up to two months at a time, in living in the shack in the jungle in it. Hawaii, and just. We would just jam in the shack, and we'd go swim on the cliffs all day. It's, you know, it's the part of the island that it's there wasn't tourists there because it's sort of more rugged and rainier. It's like the rainforest, and so it was a it was a definitely like Lord of the Flies kind of intense island experience of us just these kids living in a shack, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but we ate great. John was like a master chef, and. Um, and we all loved it and contributed and cooked together and amazing meals and just it was incredible it was an amazing experience but yeah so we we basically were living in Hawaii and uh and then um we'd rent a shack year round cuz it was cheap enough to do that and then we could go whenever we wanted but and that's eventually where we ended up yeah, recording Shackman. But and bef- but it was I guess it was after yeah it was after Shackman came out and we were still in the mid '90s and we're still going there every and we're literally we're living out in the jungle you know um, but you know you got to go to town for supplies so once a week you know you go into town and then pre internet again just remind there's no cell phones no nothing and all we had to communicate with our fans was like a 1-800 fan line <laughs> and so you know in our town weekly town trip we'd do all the groceries but then we'd check the fan line and one time we listened to a message on the fan line and it was like hey you guys this is john schofield so i'm wondering if you want to get together no way and yeah and we thought <laughs> I love we it. thought and, and you know i think it's like his daughter had turned him on to the music and he instantly related to the uh well i think you know where we were coming from rhythmically the groove stuff was very much in line with what he he's into um so i think he really related to the grooves and the rhythms meets improvisation and the freedom like that i think was something that felt natural to him and so, so he reached did... out to us, and we thought it was a crank call, like 100%. We didn't take it seriously. But somehow, eventually, we called the number, and it really was him. And 
And so yeah. what, you guys get together and like, did you have some sessions before you went in to record the album? Not much. Like we, you know, he was, I think, got inspired by, you know, what we do, what we did and maybe listening. I don't know what exactly he was hearing, what albums he was listening to, but he basically listened to us, was into it and wrote some songs. Okay. You know, but it was just sheet, sheet music. Yeah. And then we got together, and then the three of us just interpreted the sheet music however we wanted. Um, so I think there was a lot of license and, and rhythmically, you know, just to do what we yeah. do. He just wanted us to be ourselves, but he had these compositions as sort of a, you know, some a construct to work with. And uh, it was, the, the thing about it, it was effortless. Yeah, I bet. It just was easy. It sounds like, like it. We did the session and two three maybe two and a half days it was just a real jazz session super quick my studio in manhattan yeah um and uh it just felt easy the whole thing was kind of effortless and and really fun for us because with just the three of us we never get to act as like a rhythm section Right. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm, it's yeah. different. If there's someone else there, like a fourth person, we can get behind that person and be a rhythm section. Right. When it's just the three of us, we're like an orchestra. We're like a mini orchestra. Right. So, and like, and Billy and I can sort of get behind John and be sort of a little part of a rhythm section for him, but part of his brain is the rhythm section with one of his limbs, and then part is like the lead and you know there's a lot going on orchestrally with just the three of us right but well, to have a great soloist i was gonna say we when, can just when that fourth yeah. person is john schofield then yeah <laughs> you're or any you're great yeah running. any great personality strong personality yeah. strong soloist we can then just do what we love which is just be a rhythm section and just think about comping and rhythm and you know rhythmic counterpoint oh, that's man. the that's what's so fun. What a what a sick record. And then you guys had a few more releases with Sco that followed that right out louder. Um, yeah, we did a bunch of touring and, and we made another did a live studio record. record. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, really. I mean, that to me, that's like a seminal record and really exemplifies kind of the thing that you were describing, the magic of, of MMW, you know, even elevated in a way, because it's like all these heavy grooves, you know, I mean, sometimes they're slinky and simple, but there's just a real definitive groove happening, you know, and then you have all of this, this magic sort of fusion on top of it. I mean, that's, that was it long after that, that you guys got a sense of like, that that record really had an impact? Did that did that really hit right away, or did that kind of take a second for for people to catch on to it? Uh, I don't know. I can't remember. I mean, I just remember feeling like I, I remember people reacting really positive, actually, to it. I mean, it was interesting. It was uh, us doing that re record with John Schofield gave us cred in Europe. Oh, cool. Because John Schofield played with Miles Davis. Right. So people in Europe at that time and the people who book jazz festivals, mm. you know, if you played with Miles Davis, you're like, like you know, on Mount Olympus of jazz, right? Sure. You're just, you're part of the club. And so the fact that we did a record with Schofield 
it gave us some cred with those people, and we were able to get more bookings in Europe and more, you know, good festival dates and stuff, yeah. which at that time were, was really meaningful. I think a lot has changed in the whole festival landscape in Europe over the past couple decades. But yeah, um, and then for Schofield, it was he got all this cred from the sort of jam band world yeah i don't even think it was even called that at that time but you know like the the so he he was like one of those people that made all his money in europe and you know played like major cities sometimes in the u.s but he didn't tour in the u.s the yeah. way we did so that's like when he kind of got his foot in the door with that through us and got this younger audience because of us so it was kind of a good trade yeah. <laughs> and he we he, all benefited he kind of like that I would say also really influenced him in a musical capacity too, because then he went on to make like these other records, Bump and Uber Jam, and you guys weren't on those ones, but they were in that similar vein where he was. Yeah, but the thing is, he been he's been doing that his whole career. Yeah, like yeah. my brother and I grew up when we were young, aspiring musicians, still living at home. We were listening to uh, like there was one or maybe even two Schofield records. Um, I just the one that comes to mind is called Blue Matter. Okay, and it's like funk. Yeah, it's full on. It's a funk record. So Sco has always been into groove funk music, New Orleans based music. Yeah. Uh, it's always played, and then of course he's done very straight ahead jazz albums, mm -hmm. but it's always interspersed with some some heavily groove influenced stuff too. Well, Dude, I can't say enough great things about that record. I just know that was that was really a huge inspiration for for me and for, you know, the people who I played music with early on. We looked to that as something that we really aspired yeah. to. So thank you, man. Seriously, that that was You're welcome. I I mean, it's funny. I we've thinking back, we've sort of thought cuz it was apparent like that people were liking the record, but at the time, we were young and like cynical, whatever people. And <laughs> you know, I mean, that's what made us us. Like we were kind of living in this weird little universe we created, and cynical of, of a lot of other stuff happening out in the world. But yeah. that's how you are when you're young, you know. And so for us, it was kind of like ah, it's just yeah, people like it because it's like our easy listening record, you know. That's. That's how it came across to us. Sure, yeah. Because we were like trying to be all, whatever. We were just, uh, we were drawn to an edgier, more hardcore mm -hmm. something. I don't even know what word to put on it. But uh, so, well, yeah, for us, it was like, ah, it's the easy listening one. But it turned out damn good. Man, so it, it's it awesome. And it probably opened the door for a lot of people to connect then with all these other incredible records that you guys have put out, which, like I said, you know, it's a jungle in here was the first one that we got into and it does have this more sort of ensemble sound like like you were saying the way you guys are like a little orchestra the three of you and then like the horns layered and it's just there's so much originality in that music and you know equally inspirational you know on par with a go-go and and all these records and the wood brothers stuff man i just i can't say enough great things and i can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast today to drop endless knowledge uh can't, hmm, thanks can't, chris can't wait to share this with people and um say hey to your bro for me and i hope that we see you guys out there soon man all right we'll do yeah thanks Take care so much chris. all right see ya 
pure inspiration right there from one of the all-time legends. A huge thank you to my guest this week, Chris Wood. Make sure you check out the new Wood Brothers record. It's phenomenal. If you dig what you're hearing here on Inside the Musician's Brain, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave me the absolute best review you possibly can. These podcasts don't make themselves, but it actually helps a ton, and I'd love to see some feedback as well. Huge thanks to my sponsor this week. That's Deering Banjos. Thanks also to Osiris Media. They're the voice of the roots and jam music world in podcast form. And also to Americana Vibes, that's the infamous String Dusters record label. We got all kinds of great stuff coming your way in the very near future on Americana Vibes. So stay tuned there and stay tuned here as well. My guest in the next episode of the podcast is the amazing Chris Funk from The Decemberists. And we have a great story about how we met and the advent of our friendship. You won't want to miss that drop you a hint our one mutual friend is kermit the frog so if you want to hear more on that more on music more on life creativity all of it i'll see you back here in two weeks when we go back inside the musician's brain osiris Hey you, do you have any plans this year? Ha! How's that going? Do you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at 2020-D.com, soundtalentmedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app.